22. Joshua 22. If you do not have sermon notes that are in the bulletin, raise your hand. The ushers are moving through the auditorium. They'll hand you one of those so you can follow along a little bit better. We're in Joshua 22 to get started. Years ago, one of my boys, the youngest one in fact, when he was in junior high, came to me one day and said, hey dad, we're doing something at school. We're doing a skit. Would it be okay that if I took one of these pistols that I have at home, it was an air gun pistol, can I take it to use it for the skit? And it was like, no, no, you're not taking that to school. Well, I won't take any of the pellets or beeps. No, you're not taking it to school. Then he said, well, would it be okay if I took my big brother's 22 rifle instead? <laughs> it's like, no, no, you're not taking it. You know, what part of no is, he says, well, would it be okay with you? I already asked Mr. So-and-so at church. He told me I could take his pistol instead. And I looked at him and said, what part of no don't you understand? No way are you going to do this. That's exactly what happens in several passages of Scripture. There are passages of Scripture that you read a phrase that might be the phrase like, God forbid, in the King James, and shows up. And that's the, that's the nature of what's being said. No way. Now, a couple of you pointed out to me last week, and you asked a good question. I appreciate you asking the question. You said, hey, in my translation, it doesn't say God forbid. And so there's a little bit of variation. Let me just address it and then move on. The, uh, the literal phrase that's found in the Hebrew is built upon the word kalal. And that word literally means profane or away from me. There is no name of God used in this phrase in the original language, but the expression is very clear. The expression is uh, from the authors, the editors, God forbid or be it far from me or let it never be near me. That is the idea. And quite frankly, the latter two are the more um, literal translations. It shows up like in the passage in Joshua 22. In Joshua 22, there's one of those God forbids. And let me set the scene and then let me read some of the text. What is happening in Joshua and the Hebrews have invaded the land of Canaan. They, under the leadership and the guise and the direction of God Almighty, they have gone in and they have conquered the alliances of the, Can- of the Canaanites. All that is left is just small little tribal armies that uh, each one of the 12 tribes of Israel can handle. So Joshua has gathered the people together and said, go to your separate parts and you know, take over the properties and the lands and t- deal with what's left of the remnant of the Canaanites. So as they're going, two and a half of the tribes have already been given permission not to stay on the east side of the Jordan River, but to stay on the western side of the... I'm saying that backwards. To stay on the... They they aren't staying on the west side. They're going to go on the east side of the Jordan River. And so the half the tribe of Manasseh and Gad and Reuben, they're going to now cross the Jordan River, go over to where their families are, and take over that territory. And what happens in this story is, as they're ready to leave, Joshua meets with those army leaders from those two and a half tribes. And he says, please, 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 whatever you do, you're going to cross the Jordan. That's going to be somewhat of a barrier between us. Do not forsake the Lord God. Do not let the River Jordan keep you from coming to the tabernacle worship in Shiloh. Do not let the the division divide us as tribal members. If we have a need, you come running. If you have a need, we'll come running. And so he's warned them and he's encouraged them. They leave. They head towards the River Jordan. They're ready to go over and across the River Jordan. And when they're ready to go over, they pause and they build an altar. They build an altar that is big, according to the text. They build an altar that it seems, according to the text, it's modeled identical 
to the altar that is in the tabernacle area down by Shiloh. And so they build this altar, they go across the river, and they settle in with their families. It doesn't take long before somebody on the west side of the Jordan sees that altar. They don't know why it was built. And what frankly happens in human nature, if you see something that you don't understand why, oftentimes people assume things. And sometimes they assume wrong. And so what they did is somebody saw that altar built by the two and a half tribes before they crossed the river. And they said, oh, they built that altar which looks just like our main altar in the capital area of Shiloh. They must be deserting our tribes. They must be separating from the rest of us, seceding from the union of 12. They must be designing their own new religion. And they're going to make something new. They're going to worship on their own. And they start the rumor. The rumor spreads. And it spreads so quickly that what happens is all of the other tribes, the ten and a half tribes that, that are on the western side, their armies gather. They take this very seriously because they know if one of the tribes has a problem, like at the city of Ai, if one person does wrong, everybody might suffer the consequences. So they figured that if, that one, one, if those two and a half tribes have done wrong, and if they're seceding, we've got to stop this. And if they're going into heresy, we've got to stop this, or maybe none of us will be blessed. And so they gathered their armies, and when their armies are gathered together, the new high priest, his name is Phineas. Phineas tells the people, he says, now wait a minute, let's slow this down. Give me a leader from each one of these ten tribes that are gathered. We will cross the River Jordan. We will meet with the leaders of the two and a half tribes and find out exactly what's up. What are you guys doing? And so that's what happens. They go across the River Jordan. They meet with the leaders from the two and a half tribes. And they say, it looks like to us that you're seceding from the union. It looks like to us that you're starting a new religion. Verse 21 begins the answer. In verse 21, we read this. Um, then the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered. And again, we're in Joshua 22, starting with verse 21. And said unto the heads of the thousands of the Israelites, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knoweth, and Israel shall know, if it be in rebellion... Or if it be in transgression against the Lord that we have built us an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer thereon burnt offering or meat offering, or if to offer peace offerings thereon, let the Lord himself require it or judge us. And if we have not rather done it for fear of this thing, saying, In time to come your children might speak unto our children, saying, What have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord hath made Jordan a border between us and you, you children of Reuben and children of Gad, you have no part in the Lord, so shall your children make our children cease from fearing the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now prepare to build us an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but that I may be a witness between us and you and our following generations after us, that we might do the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings, with our sacrifice, with our peace offerings, that your children may not say to our children in time to come, you have no part in the Lord. Therefore said we, that it shall be when we should so say to us, or they, your children shall so, so say, so, you got it to us or to our generations in time to come that we may say again, behold, 
the pattern of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but as a witness between us and you. God forbid that we should rebel against the Lord and turn from and turn this day from following the Lord to build an altar for burnt offerings, for meat offerings, or for sacrifices besides the altar of the Lord our God that is before his in the tabernacle. And so their God forbid is in defense of themselves very strongly. But when they say this, it expresses more. We've, they've made it clear. Our, our altar that we built was a memorial so that you, your children, your generations following can't deny that we have a tie. And so it's very clear. And they said, we have no intention of devising a new religious system. We have no, inten- no intention of going away from that which the Lord God has appointed that we should believe or we should practice. That was not our intent. Nothing like that whatsoever. God forbid that we would change the prescribed worship that God has given us. And by the way, everybody is satisfied. Read the rest of the story. They're all satisfied. Everybody goes home and says, good deal. Now we know what's going on. But what it portrays for us is an attitude that is really, really important. An attitude that says we are not, we are not shifting in any way from the prescribed worships that the Lord has designed. Nor do we want our children to drift away from the Lord God. And so God forbid that we'd ever drift in worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's talk about what that could happen and look like today. God forbid that we would ever all of a sudden say, let's us in our personal life put some idol like money or entertainment or riches ahead of Jesus Christ. God forbid we would do that. God forbid that we would shift in our beliefs That Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, the sinless Savior of the world. God forbid that we would ever shift or our children would ever shift. God forbid that we would ever come to the point that we would start questioning the inspiration of the Word of God. And wondering whether the miracles were real. Wondering whether this is all God's Word. God forbid we would ever question or our kids would question that the Word of God is the Word of God. God forbid that we would ever start tolerating an idea that there are many ways to heaven besides Jesus Christ. That you might get to heaven, as long as you're sincere, you could get to heaven by baptism. God forbid we would ever, or any of us here, would adopt the idea that as long as somebody is sincere in their religious practices, that's all that counts. And get away from the biblical truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by him. God forbid we would ever shift an iota in that doctrine. Jesus is the only way whereby men must be saved. And that's it. God forbid that you and I would ever start changing our worship practices as prescribed in Scripture. That all of a sudden we might say, we don't need so much prayer. We don't need so much preaching. Let's do something different. God forbid that all of a sudden we would allow false doctrines to creep in. Doctrines about man is evolved, not created. Doctrines that would say baptism saves. Doctrine that would deny the miracles. Doctrine that would question the actual physical resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Sacerdotalism is the idea that the clergy is better than you. That we can be closer to God than you and we can know more of Scripture than you. God forbid we would ever elevate anyone or any group of people to say they are the most spiritual because they hold a position. God forbid that we would make our purpose of our services to be entertaining ourselves and tickling our ears instead of worship of God Almighty. 
God forbid that all of a sudden we would say, okay, what we want to do in the worship service is we, or any of you, would choose to say, I want to do and I want to participate in the service to show off my talents so that I could be recognized. God forbid we would ever go in that direction. God forbid that we would ever become like the Corinthians where we would tolerate immorality and ungodliness in in our doctrines or in our practices just so that we could grow in numbers. And so we shift in a position so that we would be more acceptable to the community. God forbid that we would start recognizing certain sectors of this group just because they're rich. And therefore, they're going to be elevated above the others. God forbid we would involve any of those condemned practices in the New Testament. So we want to say... No way to some of these types of shifts that could happen. And we say, nope, nope, we've, God forbid that we would ever go that direction. Let me show you another God forbid that becomes more personal to you and me. Not institutional, but personal. First Samuel chapter 2. First Samuel chapter 2, it's close by because it's really historically close by. That you shift over to the right a few books and you're going to find First Samuel. We're going to chapter 2. In First Samuel chapter 2, we have now gone several generations ahead, lived through the period of the book of Judges, and now we're towards the end of that period where the judges Judges are in the land. There is the high priest. He is still operating out of Shiloh. That is the, the headquarters. That is the capital city of the Jewish nation at this point. David and Jerusalem, there are several decades down the road. So they, they're there at the Shiloh. They have a high priest. And the high priest at this time, is his name is Eli. And there's a message God sends to the high priest Eli. He sends him through a man of God, a title that is used 78 times in the Old Testament to picture somebody who's a prophet. And so he sends him, and in that time that he comes to Eli, this man of God has this personal message, and we read about it, okay? This personal message in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And in the text... This is the only time that we read a God forbid in the Old Testament that's spoken by God. We read in chapter 2, if you jump down into the text, down to verse 29, where the prophet is saying to Eli, Wherefore, kick you at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, that is at Shiloh. And you honor your sons above me to make yourselves fat with the chief of all the offerings or the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Wherefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your fathers should walk before me forever. That is, he is a descendant of the house of Aaron. And so he's referring to that promise that Aaron's descendants would always be a high priest. And so he says, I said indeed that your house, the house of Aaron, and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, God forbid, be it far from me, for them that honor me I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days come that I, God, will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, that there shall not be an old man in your house. There's, there's going to, in your lineage, Eli, there's going to be premature deaths. And you shall see an enemy in my habitation, and in all the wealth which God has, shall give Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. 
And the man of thine whom I shall not cut off from mine altar shall be to consume your eyes, to grieve your heart, and all the increase of thy house shall die in the flower of their age. And this shall come a sign unto you that shall come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas, in one day they shall die, both of them. Oh, wow. This is harsh messages. Why did God speak so firmly and so negatively in judgment against Eli? You've got to go back in the chapter. Back up into the paragraphs and look at what's happening in the story. The, the message has to do with Eli has failed as a dad. Okay, he's, he's got the two boys and he's been serving as the high priest of Israel. He's the main leader. He's the last of the judges. So he's the civic and he's also the civil and religious leader of the nation. And he's done a good job. He's the descendant of Aaron. We know that. His sons are also inheriting the priesthood because it's passed on father, son, then keeps on going generation. But his sons have become very corrupt as priests. They have become really, really rank. They are, they are the picture of bad clergy. Emphasize bad, bad, bad. What has happened and what we read about in the previous verses to when God comes and condemns Eli and his lack of parenting these boys, God describes what, he, what his boys were doing. And if you go through and back up, and you can just see these, and I'll highlight it here on the, on the screen, that God has said through the prophet, the sin of the young men, Hophni and Phinehas, was very great. They are described as sons of Belial, ungodly, ungodly, evil, evil men. They are said that they, of them in verse 12, that they don't know the Lord. So they're leaders in worship, but they don't have a relationship with the Lord. They're not, they, they really don't have any interest other, other than it's a job. And how can I benefit from the job? And they violated all the priestly duties. And there's a lot of rules and regulations given in the law on how the priests were conducting themselves. These two guys, they, they blew it. Okay, according to Leviticus, the priest, when people, when you would come to the, the tabernacle, you would bring the animal sacrifice. And the priests, the clergy, were allowed to have part of that sacrifice as their payment. And that's what they would live on. And so it's prescribed what could be their offering, their heave offering or the contribution. And it was specified what part of the animal could be given according to, to the priests, according to Leviticus 7. And it was also specified that they weren't supposed to take any of the others. But we read that Hophni and Phinehas would take pronged items, reach down into the sacrifice, and whatever they got, they took. And so they were getting much more than they should. And we also read in the prescription of Leviticus 4 that they were not to take their portion until after the offering was boiled, the animal was boiled and waved before the Lord. But these two guys, they would come and take it right away. As soon as you walked in the door, they were the greeter. You know how when you go to certain businesses... And the salesperson hits you at the door right away. Can I help you? Can I help you? And you say, don't follow me around. I want to just look. And they are, that's what Hophni and Phinehas were doing. They were hitting the people. What'd you bring? What'd you bring? Before there was any type of active worship being done, they wanted their hands in people's back pockets. And as well, we read in Leviticus that the priests were not to eat the best part of the sacrifice. In the Old Testament era, the best part was the fat. Gross me out. 
Okay, But that was the best part. It could be used for medicines, things like that. But most of the time, it was, to, it was not to be eaten by you, not to be eaten by the clergy of that day. It was to be sacrificed to the Lord. And that was the portion that they said was the better part goes to the Lord and the Lord alone. But these guys were taking it. Now, go back in the Old Testament, and here's how serious it was. If the priest was violating some of these regulations... He that eats the fat should be cut off from the people. They could be killed for taking the wrong portions. They could be killed for demanding that which belonged to the Lord. But what was happening in this story is that these guys were threatening the people and taking it by force. Not only were they taking sacrifices, but they were taking the woman. So if you came, if they wanted your wife or if they wanted your daughter, they were violating those individuals and they claimed it in the name of the Lord that they were this is how you're going to be blessed and so it was a very very immoral clergy that these two have developed and in, according to verse 17 people said forget it um, I, the people said I'm not even going to the tabernacle I'm not even going to worship anymore and people were abhorring the act of worship so these two guys were basically they were driving people away from worship so it was bad it was really bad. And their dad, who was their, not only their dad, but their boss, he was in charge of all the priests. God says, because you are honoring your sons more than you honor me, I'm not going to continue to bless you. God forbid that I let this keep on going. God forbid that just because I said I would bless your family, that I'm going to let you get away with anything. And let you do this to, to my people. And so the, uh, the count not only tells us how serious... But you and I can sit back and say, well, what was Eli supposed to do? Okay, well, Eli had taken them to the temple. Eli had taught them how to do some worship. Eli did not intervene and did not, you know, yeah, he trained them. Yeah, he had them going to the tabernacle, but he didn't stop them. He didn't stop them from doing what they shouldn't have done. He didn't challenge them. He didn't confront them. In fact, there is one text that he goes and says to the boys, these things ought not to be, but it was much later in the development of this sin. And so he didn't do it early. He had no confrontation early. He didn't confront. And as the passage says in chapter 3, he never constrained or stopped his sons. We know as well he put his sons ahead of God. That's what God says. In the text of that verse 229 and 230, you have honored me above men. You are putting your sons above me in that, in that you're, you're letting them you're, to do what they can do. You should have stopped them. You, you should have followed my commands. You should, have, you should have been worried about pleasing me more than pleasing your boys. You're, you're taking no action, the action that I required you to implement. But you wouldn't do it because it was your boys. You were letting your boys get away with spiritual murder. And you were doing nothing at all. And so God rebukes him. God says that, yet you are basically thinking you're an exception to the rules. The rules that are, you follow my prescriptions, and if you follow them, I will bless. If you don't, I'm going to discipline. But Eli had the mindset, you know, of some sort, some way, you know, I'm a, I'm a religious leader. I'm doing these activities. Therefore, you know, God will just put up with it. He thought he was an exception. He didn't demonstrate wholehearted dedication to the Lord. Now, he was preaching. He was prophesying. He was leading in the worship. But when it came to saying, okay, I will do what God says no matter what. 
Even if it's, if it's going to be, I have to be tough with my kids. Even if I have to correct my kids, discipline my kids. As hard as that is, and you all know how hard that can be. He says, no, it's too difficult. I won't do it. I won't do what God wants in those areas because I won't. And according to the text, it seems like even though he told them, stop taking the food, stop molesting the ladies, it seems to be, by the pronouns used, where it says, you make yourselves fat, he included Eli in that. And by the way, was Eli a big man? Yeah, later on we read that he was extremely heavy. So apparently, he said to his boys, you shouldn't do that while he was eating some of the very food that they had taken. And so God is serious. God says, I want to send another prophet. The prophet shows up and you know, basically rebukes him. And you and I can answer this. What should Eli have done? What should he have done? Well, he should have removed those boys from the priesthood. That's the least he should have done. They should have been disciplined in some way or shape or form. And if he had followed the law perfectly, what could he have done? Yeah, they, could have, they could have suffered. They could have suffered capital punishment of the, because they violated the law. But he wouldn't do any of it. He didn't, he didn't remove them. He didn't discipline them. He didn't threaten them in the way shape. Now, before you and I start going, man, Eli, you did a terrible job as a parent. Maybe we should stop. Before we start casting stones at his glass house, pause and ask ourselves, do you let your kids determine how often you come to worship? Do you refuse to correct your kids the way God says you're supposed to correct your kids? Because you're more interested in your kids' feelings than in God's word. Do you let your kids get away with that which pleases, displeases the Lord because if you confront them, it's just going to be confrontation and problems in the home. Do you ever let the kids set the standards of purity in the home? Who does set the standards of what's going to be watched? Who, who does set the standards for modesty? The kids are the Lord. Do, you know, do your kids see within you a wholehearted devotion and dedication to follow God's word? That I will serve God even if it means I take and make tough decisions. That I'm going to do it. <laughs> there was, and I shared this with you a year or so ago, that the British royalty had visited the States about four years ago. And after they had, some, some from the royal family had come through, they said, did you get to see a lot of Americans in their private settings? And, oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, what did you find most interesting and different between the English and the British? And they said, the thing, and without hesitation, the thing that caught our attention the most was how many homes in, the, in America the kids run the homes rather than the adults. So, you know, it, it is a problem that all of us have to always be facing and dealing with. And so God says, Eli, you, you aren't doing a good job as a parent. So he sends the prophet in, and he's saying to him that even though I promised the lineage of Aaron, the priesthood, and it's coming through your family. Um, I'm not going to keep it through your household. I'm going to find one of, other, uh, one of Aaron's other descendants, and they will eventually become the high priest family, not your family. Be it far from me 
to continue to bless you when you despise me. Be it far from me that I'm going to continue. By the way, be it far from you and me to sit here and say, God's going to bless me even though I know I'm doing something wrong. God's going to continue to bless because I'm special. God's going to continue to bless because, you know, who I am. And in this case, putting your kids ahead of me, refusing to hold your kids to a standard, not confronting evil. This was the wrong in this text. You know, participating in it, corrupt and letting worship be corrupt. All these things he was doing wrong. And as a result, he was discouraging others from following the Lord. That was what's there in that text. But when we bring it back, can, do you think God's going to bless you just because you hold a religious office? Do you think, well, God's going to bless me because in the past I've done good? I used to teach. I used to do this. I used to witness. I used to, and you look back like Eli could have done. Do you think God's going to bless you just because you're old? You're in your senior years, and God's just going to bless every senior no matter how they live. Do you think that God's going to bless just because you know the Word of God? You know it, you've memorized it, you know the books of the Bible, you've got some verses that are committed to memory, and therefore God's just going to bless you no matter what you do. You know, are you going to be blessed just because you come to church? Just because you do some religious activities? That's what Eli was doing. Eli was active. Eli had the Bible portions in his mind. Eli was old. Eli was in a, in a spot that was a high position. But God says, God forbid I'm going to continue to bless when you're doing wrong. When in your private life, you are allowing something that should be, that should be taken out, should be stopped. God forbid that we would presume upon God that he would bless us while we continue to do something wrong. God forbid. Then it shows up a third time in this, a second time in this book, chapter 12. Chapter 12, let's advance a few decades, Okay. While Eli was the high priest, he had a boy, a young boy living in him that he had become foster parent to this young boy. Do you remember who he is? Samuel. Now we're fast forwarding and Samuel is an old man. Samuel has been the leader for a number of years and he's been guiding the tribe. So maybe, maybe we're 50, 60 years down the road now. And Samuel is, is the leader. And what has happened is Samuel is gathering all of us together, all the, all the tribes. Here we go. And we have just inaugurated a king for the first time. The new king is Saul. And he's just been put on the throne. And Samuel says, okay, let's gather. You've got a new king, and I want to give you... You know, some, some words. I'm going to be around for a while, but I'm no longer going to be your civic leader. He's, you got a king now. So instead of me serving like Eli did as a judge or like Samson or all these others did as Jephthah and you name them as judges and Gideon, I am stepping down. He's your new civic leader, but I'll continue to be your spiritual leader. As your spiritual leader, let me advise you. And that's what's happening in chapter 12. He gathers the tribes together and he gives them this speech. Now look at the first couple verses. He is saying, by the way, um, have, can any of you say I have ripped you off? I have taken sacrifice I shouldn't have taken. I have exceeded my office. After I've been serving you for 50 years, okay, can any of you find fault in what I've done? And the response of the people is, no. 
You have been above board. What a refreshing passage to read when you had just finished reading about Hophni and Phinehas. And so, Samuel, you have been exemplary in what you've done. You've done a great job. It's almost as if some of the passage goes this way. It's like, then, if you didn't like the way I was leading, why did you have to have a king? What was wrong with the way we were doing things? Why did you insist you have a king when everything was working? And I was providing the right leadership. Why were you basically giving me a no vote of confidence as your leader? Do you remember why? Remember their, their predominant reason? We want to be like other nations. Okay, we want to be like other nations. And they stated that. Other people have a king. Why don't we have a king? And he warned them. If you pick a king, he's going to raise your taxes. He's going to start taking your young men and he's going to get this military concept of he's got to conquer, conquer, conquer. And he's, you're going to have a lot of problems if you bring in a king because somebody's got to support the king. Somebody's got to finance the king. The king's going to get, you know, war hungry. And he warned them about that. And they said, no, no, we want to be like other nations. So, in, so it's gone on. They've had the election. Yeah, God's election. They had God point out it's going to be Saul. Saul's been inaugurated. And Samuel's just saying, okay, just to put it all in perspective, when, when you rejected, or when, yeah, when you didn't want me to lead anymore, in reality, you were saying to God, look at verse 12. Look at verse 12 in this whole text. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, down to verse 12. He says to them that basically what you have done is you have said unto me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. So you didn't reject me. In essence, you rejected God's daily rule over your life. That's the context. And then what he does is he says, you know, where, where you've gone with this is you're bordering on rebellion. And he starts rehearsing some of their history in the next, in these uh, surrounding verses. He says, um, says to them, you know, do you remember, do you remember what's happened in the last few decades and years? You would get away from the Lord. And when you would get away from the Lord, God would respond. He would, he would bless you when you did good. But when you got away from the Lord, he would send some type of judgment, typically a, a, some enemy. And then you would repent and you would call upon the Lord and the Lord would come and deliver you. That's the whole book of Judges. And so when you prayed, God responded when you prayed in repentance. And God was the one. And so you, God has bailed you out time and time again. And so I don't understand why you're rejecting God. He was doing a good job guiding and directing you. And so what you've basically done is you said, we don't want your leadership anymore, even though you've done a great job for decades. And... People, you are this close to being in a real, real heap of trouble of rejecting God. Now, that's the setting of the God forbid. That all of a sudden, then he says, just to show you how you have displeased God. And we read the next few verses, he prays. And he says, God, show them your displeasure. And in those days, one of the ways that God would show displeasure is nature. He could send storms or he could keep back needed rain. And so at this time of the year, and the setting is critical, this is the time of the year of harvest. This is the time of the year for them where they're gathered in their country that there was never rain. 
never is pretty close to the reality that there wasn't going to be any kind of rain. And so, God, to show your displeasure and how close those people are, then send us a storm. And apparently, it's a whopper of a storm. It was probably like some of you said last night, the winds were blowing, took down some trees in the area. There was the thunder and there was the lightning. Well, these people are in daylight hours and the storm comes on cue at a time when it doesn't normally come. And the storm is violent. And there it is, this storm is whipping up and the people, I suppose, you know, their hair is blowing, they're getting a little bit wet, and they're, you know, the lightning and the thunder is getting close and there's no trees to go and hide under. And there they are. And they respond and their reaction is one where they said, oh, every time we got in trouble in the past, we prayed. And, and God responded. So they turned to, the, to Samuel, and it says in verse 18, All the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said, verse 19, unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God. Why is it that they want him to pray? What's your next phrase? That we die not. What's that tell you about the storm? Okay, it's a bad storm. Oh, and by the way, let me add, if the storm continues... Before they get their harvest in, they're going to lose the harvest and they're going to starve. So this is a real serious moment for them. For we have added unto all our sins this evil to ask us a king. And so they're asking and, you know, pray for us, pray for us, pray for us, please pray for us. Samuel's response in the next verse is a God forbid. It is a classic response of a real man of God. He says, as for me, emphatically, as for me, God forbid, be it far from me, literally, be it far from me that I would sin in ceasing to pray for you. Be it far from me. This is my job. I'm your spiritual leader. This is what I'm supposed to be doing as the priest. Be it far from me that I would stop praying for those of you who I'm supposed to pray for. Be it far from me. Be it far from me to do that. Can we, can we twist this now to saying, okay, you, you are the New Testament priest if you're born again, correct? Yes or no? Yeah, I'm not the priest. We are all priests. We as New Testament believers can go directly to the Lord in prayer. All of us New Testament believers are called to be praying. Be it far from us, be it far from you, that you would cease to pray. In other words, let's make this more personal, practical. Like Samuel, you should seek to pray personally. He highlighted that in this text. He said, it was my duty to pray. By the way, it's your duty to pray. But he says, it's my duty to pray. He understood that not doing that duty would be sin for him. Be it far from me that I would sin in ceasing to pray. He said that I would do this and think this through, even though he's a busy man. He isn't retiring. He's not doing part of the job, but he is still going to be leading the nation in many ways. He is going to become the advisor to the king. He is still going to conduct and lead and guide the temple rituals. He are the, excuse me, tabernacle rituals. He is going to be consulted by the people for little things like, 
you know, donkeys and different things like that, you know, where to find things. So he's going to be doing counseling. He's a busy, busy man, but he says, I'm still going to pray for you. I've done a lot already. Go back through his history that he's prayed for them and prayed for them and led them. Next to Moses, he is the most frequently quoted individual praying for the people of Israel. On multiple occasions. Here he is. He's a mature man. He's an older man. He knows what it means to be godly. But he doesn't say retirement from prayer. I'm godly. I don't need to pray anymore. That's not him. And it shouldn't be you. You and I should say, hey, like him, we should pray personally. We should pray for others. We should make this a part of our life where, where we will pray for others that asks us to pray for them. We will pray for others who might upset us at times. These people upset him multiple times. We should pray for others who are spiritually weak. We have added to our sins. We should be praying for others that, that include that idea that, that we don't stop praying, but on a regular basis, praying for others, praying for others, praying for others, and focusing on that. In the New Testament, where we live... And we find our commands and duties and prescribed obligations. We find multiple times that it calls for every born-again believer, no matter what their age, to be praying habitually. Do you? Have you? Will you? We are told in the New Testament that we are to pray for the kings and those in authority. First of all, we are to be praying with prayers and supplications and intercessions and giving of thanks, we are supposed to be actively praying for leadership and how it would affect the display and the actions of us as believers. We are told in the New Testament, we are to pray for those who are sick, those who are ill, those individuals who are facing a surgery or coming off of surgery or dealing with cancer or the flu or whatever it may be. Is any sick among you? Call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over them. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. We're we're commanded in scripture. We're to pray for those who minister the word of God to us. Whether it be the preacher, the Sunday school teacher, those who are doing a Bible study with you. He says, strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. This includes missionaries. This is why we do an adopt a missionary. To encourage you, to help you, to habitually pray for the missionaries. Have you? Are you? Will you? We are told in scriptures, we're to be praying for those who have gotten away from the Lord. Those who are struggling spiritually. If any sees his brother sinning a sin which is not in death, he will ask and he will give him the life. Then he goes on and says, it could be so serious that somebody could sin, us, sin unto death. But that's not what we're praying for. We're praying for a recovery. Are you? Have you? Will you? Pray for those who are brothers and sisters in the Lord who are struggling. You're to be praying for one another. He says in the text, praying with, uh, always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Have you, will you, are you praying for one another the way you should be? The way God wants you, the way God commands us to. Do you pray for your family? Do you pray for others within the youth group? Do you pray for fellow worshipers? Do you pray for those who are doing Bible studies? Do you pray for those who are sick amongst our congregation? 
Do you? More than what I lead in prayer here, do you personally pray on a regular daily basis? And it's supposed to be all prayer and supplication. It's supposed to be a regular daily part of our life. Is it? God forbid that we would sin in ceasing to pray. But have you? And you can't say we're too busy. And you can't say it's up to somebody else. If you're born again, this is your duty. This is your obligation. And God says, I will answer your prayers. I will answer. If you call upon me, I will show you great and mighty things that you know not. God says that if you call upon me, whatever you ask in the Father's name, then I will do. God says in his word that if we ask, if we knock, if we seek, it's, we're going to receive, we're going to find. It'll be open to us. You can't say it's God's fault that you don't pray, that he's disinterested. He hungers to hear from you, teenager. He pleads with you, mom, dad. He begs and commands the senior adults to be praying. The singles, the married. Are you? Have you? Will you? And God's going to answer. We spent time this week with one of the missionaries who was here last weekend. And he said, you know, I've got a re- learned a real lesson lately about prayer. He said, last summer in our ministries, we were praying that 50 different Muslim would respond as we did family camps, as we did ministries to try to reach out with the gospel in this one community that we were working in, in this one region. He said, oh, me of little faith. I was terribly rebuked. We saw 60 people get saved. And he said, so this summer I'm praying for over 200. He said, I learned. Great and mighty things will I show you. He was sharing with me a situation, a true story, sharing with my wife and I, about a church group that got real serious, one of those groups that they're working with, about a prayer matter that happened in their church here in the last few months. What had happened is they had seen this young lady, single gal, get saved out of the Muslim faith and start coming to their Bible studies. She came to the Bible studies, got saved, and she was growing in the Lord. And this young lady said, just a wonderful spirit, wanted to learn the word, receiving a lot of opposition and some persecution from, fa- from family members and others. And this young lady just kept on, kept on studying the word of God, meeting on a regular basis when they would meet week by week a couple times to study the word of God, to study the word of God, to study the word of God. And after a period of time went by, all of a sudden, one day, this young lady woke up and she was blind. Went to the doctors, went to the hospitals, went to the universities. Nobody could find what was wrong with this young lady. Neighbors knew. Neighbors came. Parents, family, they came. You have left the Muslim faith. This is why you're blind. You are following that Christianity and you are being punished for leaving our faith. And so she was being condemned. She developed an attitude of trust an attitude of not bitterness towards the Lord. Though she was a young adult in her early 20s, unable to see, all of a sudden being persecuted and now being dependent upon others, he said her attitude was fabulous. She tried to become somewhat independent as the months went by, being able to take care of herself, her daily chores, her daily needs, and considered this suffering that she was on top of all the others with the persecution, considering the suffering she had in her blindness as being some type of gift from God. 
And so time went by. A few of the believers in that Bible study group, they'd been praying, but they said, you know what, we haven't been seriously praying like we should be. In their Bible study, they realized that, yes, they've been mentioning it, but they needed to get really more actively involved in praying for this young lady. So a handful of them decided that what they would do is they would pray and fast on a regular basis. Though this has been lasting for months and months and no doctors are finding out any issue, why it is happening, these believers determined that they would just pray and fast on, a, on a, at least once a week for this gal, for a meal or for a day. And after just a three, four week period, they were gathered with this girl. That prayer meeting was taking place again that evening. And as they were praying with this girl, all of a sudden, she started to bleed out of her nose. And it was profusely bleeding. They were trying to help her to get it stopped. You know, hold the head back. Do everything that we do when you get a bloody nose. Nothing. It was still just profusely bleeding. They realized that this could be very serious. They took her to that manger hospital in town that the doctors had examined, examined, examined. They took her down there. They put her in the ER, and they're examining. They, the doctors have her with her head back, eyes closed, have rags all over, replacing the rags. And they can't get the thing stopped for a bit until all of a sudden it stopped. That suddenly it stopped. The bloody nose was gone. They told her just to rest for a while. Let's see what happens. See if we have to cauterize or do anything. They didn't need to. But after a few moments they said, okay, why don't you sit up? When she sat up and finally opened her eyes, she could see perfectly. Could see perfectly. The doctors are still stumped. The, the one suggestion they made is maybe there was a blood clot pushing against the optical nerve that nobody could find and it just burst. I don't know what the reason is medically, but I know that God answers prayer if we pray. And maybe, maybe it's about time that a good number here say, I am going to get serious about prayer. And I, God forbid that I sin against God and others by not praying on a more fervent, regular basis.